because when you look at something like of Bach, like the you know the the art of the fugue or the Goldberg variations and so on, the level of complexity involved is astounding. But then you see when you when you're exposed to it, it stretches the brain. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to the Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy, and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. 86-year-old Barry Jones has led a full life. Nine years as a teacher at Dandenong High School, five years in the Victorian Parliament, more than 20 years in the Federal Parliament, including time as Australia's longest-serving science minister. He's written more than a dozen books, but that sort of undersells it because he keeps on updating his books with new editions. Australia has four learned academies, but only one person who has been elected to all four of them. He's campaigned prominently on the death penalty and on climate change, having a little more success on the former than the latter. And he first came to prominence as Australia's pick-a-box champion. Before there was Google, there was Barry Jones. Barry, welcome to the Good Life podcast. Thank you for inviting me. So how does one become a pick-a-box champion? How, you, how do you develop that voracious interest that allowed you to uh, dominate this oddly archaic sport uh, through, the, uh, through the 1960s? Well, I think I, I, I've sometimes described myself as having an obsessive personality, but not an addictive one. Um, I'm not much into addiction, but I am into obsession, so that when I see an issue, uh, when I become passionately interested in an issue, and it might be, I don't know, uh, the Industrial Revolution of the 18th century. It means that I read everything that I can on it, I master the, the, the detail, and I make connections. I think I'm quite good at making connections. Uh, and so the result is that often, uh, for example, with my success on Pickerbox, something which I'm surprised with your comparative youth, you, it's not just a, a vestigial kind of memory that's been <laughs> passed on to you by parents or grandparents. Often I'll find people of your age come up to you in the street and say, my mother thinks you're wonderful. <laughs> uh, but they, I say, but you've never seen me. They say, no, 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 I've never, never seen you at all. But... Um, Although some people do look it up on uh, on uh, YouTube, there's apparently a number of clips there, and people think they're very odd. But it means that um, if I'm, uh, say, uh, developing that interest in the Industrial Revolution of the 18th century or American political history, mm. um, the material doesn't exist as. Uh, just a, a number of discrete bits of information, um, it really hangs together in a, co in a coherent whole. I remember 
in the days when I was on Pickerbox, there was one of my uh, colleagues who I liked very much, and ultimately he went and worked for the Australian Democrats. It's another something from the past, uh, George Black. But what happened with George was George had a system for getting discrete bits of information so that he, he could remember, a, probably better than me, he could remember a whole series of things that had happened in years ending with the, the letters 3-2. So if you wanted to know what year George Washington was born in, well, it was 1732. What year Barry Jones was born in? 1932. But he had, it was a matter of linking these things together mm. in a quite arbitrary kind of way. I couldn't do it like that. I had to have the whole beast. I had to have the articulation of the skeleton. And that was why, I mean, it was a general technique. If I was asked a complex question um, uh, and they said, uh, who's the sixth president of the United States? I wouldn't just come straight out and say, um, John Quincy Adams, uh, I'd, I'd have to work, I'd have to think number one, number two, number three, number four, because I would see the connection of it and say, ah, yes, so that if they then went on, which was 11, which was 13, I had to go through, the, I had to articulate the whole thing, which I did. And uh, now that gave me, a, to some extent, a, a, a negative reputation uh, for being a sort of know-all and a show-off, uh, but it also meant that to a lot of people who hadn't had exposure to higher education, it was often uh, that uh, people would come up, still come up to me now, 60 years after the event, and say, oh, my mother always used to say, listen to him, you know, that's a model, that's the way you should be learning. It's, it is extraordinary how constant families said this was the exposure to a different kind of operating about learning. Uh, and the famous uh, or infamous debate, which you can see on um, YouTube, um, about who was the first British Governor-General of India. I, I mean, was going to mention At one level, I mean, who gives a toss? But at another level... Uh, it was uh, what had happened was that the uh, the Encyclopaedia Britannica, various other various other textbooks, uh, all took the, the the easy way out and said, "Oh yes, yes, yes." The first Governor General of British India was was Warren Hastings. Well, that's not really true. Uh, it was then called the he was the head of the presidency of uh, uh, Calcutta. Uh, and uh, later on, Governor of Bengal, and then the name changed and changed, and then finally, the title of Governor General of India was actually conferred by statute. Now, you've got to have a lot of interest in that um, uh, in order to pursue it. And uh, what happened, the turning point in some ways with, um, with Pickerbox, with, with Bob Dyer, who were... Uh, Howdy customers, Bob Dyer, who was the, the host of Pickerbox. Um, when I had this challenge, uh, and I had a, somebody who was a sort of fresh-faced 
female graduate, uh, and when she'd been asked the question, uh, who's the first British Governor-General of India, she immediately said, Warren Hastings. And then when, when it was my turn and I was asked the same question, which was the way the format operated, um, I said, well, look, I know the answer that you're after is Warren Hastings, but it isn't technically correct. Now, that threw him because, yes, that was indeed the answer he was looking for because it was there on the card, wasn't it? And so when I said, no, no but look, mm. they've all got it wrong, what was interesting was that he made a judgment absolutely on the spot to uh, really take the issue up and devote an entire 30-minute prime-time program on commercial television uh, to devoting this rather arcane issue so that he had, he had three characters... Uh, um, uh, Professor Jacobs from Sydney University, AGL Shaw from, from Monash, and somebody from the Indian High Commission, and the issue was argued out for 30 minutes. Now, that was a new way of, uh, a new way of presenting uh, information. But it's curious that there was that hunger for, for knowledge now, and I suspect that's gone. And but the I'm, hunger in you, where does, where does that come from? Because I'm interested in the how you how you take on this ambition to sort of get your head around the world's knowledge. You must have been reading huge numbers of books and, and very fast. Well, you? I was. Well, I was a very well. I, I'd say a fa an efficient reader, uh, perhaps more than just a fast reader. Oh no, I think I was uh, very good at that. And uh, but it was always curious. I um, I had this reputation as a quite a small child, uh, for being freakish uh, with reading. And this was very troubling to my mother. My mother my mother somehow had this idea that sometimes they'd say, oh, uh, he's a real prodigy, that boy of yours. And that, that produced a very adverse reaction to my mother because she thought, oh, prodigies always finish up badly, you see. So uh, she... Um, so the result is she was never very encouraging about this. I, just to segue slightly, I was very struck by, uh, uh, you know, the great uh, Alan Bennett, uh, who's two years younger than me, but Alan Bennett, the playwright and so on. But when he grew up in Leeds, he was very conscious that his parents, who were very devoted and very fine people, but the parents were always nervous that he would stick his head up above the parapet and that he would do something that attracted attention to him. And so they'd say, Alan, don't try not to do anything that attracts attention to you. In other words, there was a, a really a, a, a profound concern about appearing to be outside the mainstream, appearing not to be, not to be different, not to be a prodigy. And... Um, so he was conscious always that if he achieved some success and early recognition, that his parents were a bit, a bit disturbed by it all, say, oh, where will, this, where will this all lead? 
And of course, in Australia, you've got uh, people like Clive James and Jermaine Greer leaving the country because they feel as though they can't be this sort of expansive intellectuals in uh, 1960s Australia. Did you ever uh, think think about following suit? Oddly not. I, I think because early on, um, I had a very strong sense that... Um, I wanted to go into uh, into politics, and I thought so that sticking around and slugging it out uh, in the uh, in the Labor Party in in uh, Victoria in the 1950s, which wasn't easy, let me tell you, um, th- that I really had to stick around because I had colleagues who were fight- trying to fight the good fight to open the Labor Party up. To, in fact, to make it a more democratic organisation. Now, that's an idea. <laughs> well, this is, of course, Victoria. Of course, you're from Canberra, and it's different in Canberra, I know that. And you're from Victoria, and this is where this is the heart of the split, and we're talking not long after the split. And oh, so yeah. that uh, the importance of uh, uh, having a more democratic Labor Party, uh, as distinct from the Democratic Labor Party, is, uh, is pre- pretty live. Uh, how did you how did you balance all that you were you were doing at the at the time? Did you ease off at the re, with the reading as you made your way into state politics and then into federal politics, or have you always carved time out of the day to read? Well, there are a few other things as well. I mean, I did practice law uh, uh, briefly for a while, not not particularly happily, because I'd always seen the law degree as being not an end in itself. I'd always seen that as being something that would equip me mm. to being, um, you know, perhaps somebody who could draft legislation or draft amendments. And in fact, I really wasn't bad at that. You know, it's funny, uh, a few weeks ago I got an email from somebody who said, oh, that he was following up, he wanted to write something about some of the speeches that had been, uh, that I'd delivered in the... 1970s, or the very early 1970s. No, no, sorry. Let me let me do that again. About some speeches that I delivered in the 1970s, just after I had gone into the Commonwealth Parliament, mm. and so I started rereading Hans on online from 1978, and a couple of things have struck me. First of all, I couldn't help being actually quite quite smug about some of the speeches that I've done because <laughs> they were they were not only they were almost um, uh, Andrew Lee like in their in their uh, <laughs> in their in their erudition. Ah flattery will get you uh, everywhere. But uh, but it but the point is often the response that I got from the government people was really on quite an elevated level. Mm. And, and a couple of things really struck me when I was going through the Hansard, and this, these may seem like very fresh new ideas to you, but say at question time, people asked questions because they actually wanted to hear what the answer was. I mean, it wasn't simply to score a point and say, well, you rotten mugs, you failed to do so-and-so. If you really wanted to say what's happened to the you know, levels of water consumption mm. in the Murray-Darling system, how much is going to irrigate. It was actually a desire to form, to get an informed basis on which you could then say, well, is that the best that we can do? 
And I was staggered sometimes that I would look and I'd see people, often who didn't have any uh, formal, serious formal education at all, but who had a passionate commitment to reading. There's somebody I uh, was very, very fond of uh, called Ralph Jacoby. The name may not mean anything to you, but Ralph Jacoby was a kind of an independent character in the Labour Party. He'd been a union official, but he, he, he was nobody's prisoner. And he managed to hang on to the marginal seat of Kingston, doesn't exist anymore, into the marginal seat of Kingston. But he had developed in this marginal seat the interests that he had were not exactly that you'd think were top-of-the-mind top issues in a marginal seat of Kingston. His great passion was water, the Middle East, oil, Antarctica, and civil rights in Eastern Europe. Now, you'd think none of these is going to be an mm. election winner, uh, you know, in that seat. But he developed what was really quite an encyclopedic knowledge. Oh, oh and corporations law. And one of the great <laughs> moments that I remember, one of the great moments I remember was that he had a debate on the, in the second reading with, uh, with John Spender, who was a QC, Percy Spender's son. And he made some reference about the corporation law. And um, Spender said in a very condescending kind of way, he said, uh, well, he said, look, I appreciate what the honourable member said. I, of course, as a layman, he doesn't understand the finer points of the law, but, uh, you know, good luck to him for trying, you know. Whereupon, whereupon, Jacoby then got up and did absolutely off the top of his head a recitation of the variation of the position of the High Court in a whole series of cases, how they changed their view about the, uh, about the corporation's law. And I remember Spender just slunk off. <laughs> and a number of his colleagues, including some on his own side, said, good one. He was absolutely extraordinary with that sort of thing. And I remember Steele Hall, not a bad guy who'd been the Premier, mm. thought, oh, look, he'll be easy to knock off. I've got terrific name recognition as a former, uh, uh, as a former Premier of South Australia. I'll go and campaign. Well, he campaigned against Jacoby. Jacoby knocked him off. But the funniest thing of all, and I can't help telling you this, was that even though people who were close to him, and I was close to him, uh, when they had uh, ballots in the caucus, he'd never revealed to anyone what he was going to do. It was absolutely up to him. And, and I'd say, you know, there was a period when... Um, uh, you know, I'd, I'd say to him, how are you going to vote on so-and-so? And he'd say, none of your bloody business. And he was half serious, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't say. Back in 1977, Caucus experimented with the idea of uh, having a mid-term election for the leadership. That's what they do in New Zealand, because you don't get to vote on the leadership as a new member. You've got to wait for a year or two and... That's quite a sensible idea in a way, midterm to midterm as the, the election. Um, anyway, what had happened was that Hayden challenged Whitlam. And um, 
Nobody knew how Jacoby was going to vote. Anyway, uh, so on this occasion, Jacoby's sitting up on the back bench and Whitlam comes and comes up and sits next to him in the corral, next to him, you see. And Jacoby says quite loud, he said, what are you doing here? And he said, well, I, I, I've come to see you. He said, well, you've never bloody well done it before. He said, you get back to your place. And Whitlam sort of recoiled some. He said, you get back to your place. That's where you belong. You don't belong here. Get down there. Oh, so Whitlam, somewhat abashed, you see, mm. walked down. So that was not lost on the Hayden camp. They thought, oh, this is, this is, this is promising. You know, he's repudiated Whitlam. So somebody went to see Jacoby and said, look, I've been authorised by the leader to say that if we could have your vote for, uh, for Hayden, you'll go straight on the front bench. So Jacoby said, well, in that case, I'm voting for Whitlam. <laughs> but you see, he was a person of absolute integrity. Yes, yes. Absolute integrity. And the point is that... Uh, and the contributions of bait that he made were terrific. And I've got to say this, and I, I say it reluctantly somewhat, when I look back at those debates of the 1970s, it seems to me the quality of the debate was probably an order of magnitude better than it is now. And that was where you had a community that was far, where the level of education, of formal education, was far lower. You only had, you know, you could afford to have free university tuition because there were so few people Indeed. at universities. So you've covered a lot there, and I'm also aware of the constraint of trying to keep this podcast uh, politics and policy I free. I thought we were going on for four hours. But I am uh, absolutely Castro-esque in, in its uh, scope. I'm, I'm intrigued by the notion of being able to hold a lot of information in your head. I assume you have a, a photographic memory. And no. No, 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 I don't. I, I've, really? I've, I've, it, it's not a photographic memory. Some of those great, um, uh, you know, people who had photographic memories, who indeed some of them on Pickerbox, uh, could get a list of uh, uh, random numbers or mm. something like that and look at them or, or Melbourne Cup winners or something and then say, right, OK, now I'll reel them off. I can't do that. I've got to be interested in the subject. If I've got a passionate interest in the subject, um, uh, then I've, because everything's interconnected, they're not discrete pieces of information. And the point about, uh, I remember there was, uh, there was a famous uh, case of um, uh, a senator, uh, a Labor senator, who had a photographic memory. I think his name was Theo Nichols years and years ago, and he was phenomenal because you could give him a page from a budget uh, paper, he'd look at it, he could re reel it off, but he didn't know what it meant. So having, but you, you're nonetheless able to contain vast amounts of information in your head in a debate. Does that make, have you always seen that as your strength as an orator? Being able to, uh, to to not have to constantly refer to notes as you're uh, as you're giving a speech. Well, I'd say, I don't attempt to. No, I mean I do I do use notes, although not not slavishly. And I think I'm actually pretty 
good at if I've got the notes there because I want to make sure I get the, the order of things absolutely right mm. f because I'm, I'm tailoring what I say to that particular audience. And it's not my mind I'm concerned about, it's their minds that I'm concerned about. So uh, if, if, uh, if I was giving a speech on, well, we say climate change, depending on what the audience is like, if it's, a, if it's a, 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 an open audience, if it's a, an audience of, of, of people who are strong supporters of my position, I'll put it in a particular way. If it's a if it's a sceptical audience or an audience that's poorly informed, I'll do it in a completely different mm, way. Mm. I want to come to the arts. Yep. Uh, there's the sort of famous CP Snow dichotomy between the arts and the sciences, but you've grabbed both and made them your passions. I was just uh, looking through your uh, uh, Christmas letter from last year and uh, there's references to Mozart, Massayen and Brahms and Beethoven, to Bellini, to Debussy, to Bowman, to Ro Rossini, to Wilde, to Beckett, to Gore Vidal, to Auden, to Blake, to Rowan Williams. You seem to have attended every music festival in the country and a plethora of art galleries. Uh, I want to tease apart how you go about consuming culture, uh, what, you, what you listen to, where you go, and, and how you fit it in an order in your mind. But you see, it, it's, it's, partly, it's part of the exercise of trying to find out who I am. Um, I, just ducking back for a minute, I always remember hearing Bertrand Russell in the flesh in Melbourne not far from where we are now. And uh, he said three things. I mean, he said, didn't only say it in Melbourne, he said it many times, no doubt, but he said that there were three things that drove him. The search for love, the search for knowledge, and unbearable pity for the suffering of mankind. And those are the three things that are really linking, linking together. And, and the point is that if, say, having a passion for J.S. Bach, the thing that's so extraordinary about Bach, for example, is that he had an enormous output. And even if one hears a piece of Bach for the first time, and there's a lot of stuff that's only just been recorded comparatively recently. I mean, after all, we've got 205 surviving cantatas, for example. I wouldn't pretend to know them all. But if I hear something that's absolutely new to me, I know within two or three bars that it's Bach. It can't be anyone else. Hmm. Uh, uh, because there's that voice. And there's a wonderful something that uh, John Kutzeyer wrote, uh, said that in a, in a sense that we... we that Bach is the person that one might say what one would like to have as a father who communicates something and something in whom you, you have an immediate, instinctive relationship with. You wrote about the piano concerto number four being important in your recovery from an injury last year. Absolutely. Well, what happened, I, uh, I had this, you know, quite serious... Uh, fall and whacked my head and actually uh, 
whack my head out of alignment. Now, I went to the left rather than the right. Now, that may not please you, but it, it <laughs> went about five degrees to the left. Uh, and um, I, the worst thing about it was that I found that when I thought, well, when I get home, I'll catch up with my reading. And I suddenly, for the first time in my life, I'd lost interest in reading. I, I couldn't, it didn't sort of make any sense. I'd read something, didn't make any particular sense. I'd read it again, read it a third time, then I'd give up. What really brought me back was uh, music, and I'd say that the this extraordinary recording of the Beethoven Piano Concerto Number no. Four, done by Maria Jaio Pires, the great, uh, astonishing uh, Portuguese uh, uh, pianist, somebody who really only became an international figure quite late in her life, I mean, well into her 60s and so on. She didn't record this until she was 71. Um, but, you see, what you find with the, the piano concerto number four, it's the only one of Beethoven's piano concertos that begins with a piano solo, so that you begin with a, very, with a single line and then you add a layer of complexity. Then you add a further layer of complexity to it, then a third, then a fourth layer of complexity. Then those elements interact and so on. And I must have played, I wish I could say I'd played it at the keyboard, but I'm a dreadful prestidigitator, um, but I must have played it 20 times. And the point is, every time that I did it, it had the same effect, that it, it really brought my mind back mm. what it had been. But I can see that by looking at the computer, for example, I went for an entire month without ever using the computer, without ever dealing with... I just wasn't, wasn't plugged in. I've made a very good recovery, and I think now I'm better than I was, say, at this time last year. But the music was absolutely profound. So I'd play a lot of, uh, of, uh, uh, of that particular work of Beethoven, but a tremendous amount of, of, of Bach. If you haven't seen it, and if your podcast followers haven't seen it, a couple of the great experiences, uh, you can download a bit of it for free uh, if, you, if you go to the Berlin Philharmonic website you can get some significant bits of a dramatised performance of Bach's Matthew Passion and the John Passion, done by Peter Sellers, Sellars, not, not as in Goon Show, uh, Peter Sellers, but where, um, done by the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Simon Rattle, and, uh, but done in, done in Berlin. And the the performances, particularly the performance of uh, The Evangelist by Mark Padmore, the English tenor, the, the acting is simply astounding. And I remember making, it was a, perhaps a kind of, a, a, kind of a, a mistake, but I was asked to talk to a Melbourne choir, the Melbourne Bach Choir, who were doing the uh, uh, St John Passion. So I, uh, I brought down, I thought, oh, well, I'd give them a treat. 
I'll, I'll play the the DVD of the opening of the St John of the St John Passion. Well, it didn't have quite the desired effect because they were so awestruck by it all. They thought, "Oh, <laughs> we can't, we can't." Because at the beginning, what happens with the in the fourth in the John Passion is the because that's something that begins where they the first chorus looks towards the end, so that the horror show mm. opens up right at the beginning. And at the beginning of this Peter Sellers performance, the choir are actually on their backs. Phenomenal. They're writhing, you see, and they hair, hair, Lord, Lord. But it's all completely this, uh, this, this amazing sense, this explosion of emotion. It's so wonderful. So as a regular consumer of uh, concert, uh, concerts and plays, how do you get the most out of them? How do you prepare? Do you tend to read a play script, uh, look over a score before you, before you go along? Do you focus on, on particular things? Because I imagine some of our listeners would like to get into these art forms, but particularly in the case of, say, opera, find them a little intimidating and aren't quite sure what the best entry point is. Have you got some tips and tricks? Well, the, the, I think I think even even if you read the the um, you know the dreaded Wikipedia entries on a lot of stuff, they're often very useful and quite a helpful way. And and often there'll be a clip mm. that you can that you can follow. But you see, the the essence, I think, I why it's, it's, it's so important to understand it is that you've got to work out as to whether you, you want music to be a simply shared experience where, if you wanted, everyone could stand up and sing the lyrics. And I people tell me that, um, you know, with, um, uh, with, with the, the Beatles or some of the more uh, popular uh, groups, you find everyone in the in the knows the words. Now, in the case of Matthew Passion, very few people will know the words. The question is whether you're looking for a mass experience where we're all holding hands in a mm. sense and sharing something, or whether you say, no, this is me, Barry, this is you, Andrew, and you're embarking on what might be quite a dangerous course in which you're going to find out things about yourself, find out things about the world, find out things about destiny, about chaos, about all sorts of very complex things. But you, you, you do it with a sense of, of being prepared to take on an adventure. And what you're looking for is not a, a, a low level of complexity, but a high level of complexity. Mm, mm. Because when you look at something like of Bach, like the, you know, the the art of the fugue or the Goldberg variations and so on, the level of complexity involved is astounding. But then you see, when you when you're exposed to it, it stretches the brain. And you see, imagine if we had a situation where we said, look, let's let's revive the whole concept of basic English. Who needs to have a vocabulary of 10,000 words, 15,000 words. You can make yourself commu communicate with 100 words. If you just said thank you, goodbye, mm. and so on. But it does make for a rather limited level of, uh, of communication. But you say, say, 
it would be wonderful to have everyone speaking the same language, everyone cheering uh, uh, the same way. So you're looking for the unique insight that the music can offer you, something it can stretch you with on that particular evening? Well, I'm asking the question, what the fuck is the universe all about? And where do I fit in? And what about poetry? Because you've uh, you are part of uh, a group which does uh, does poetry readings in public. Uh, do you draw something? No, no, similar? no. That's not quite Sorry, right. Not no, that, no. But... What happened is no, no. This is a Julian Burnside concept. Every year on my birthday, providing I survive, uh, and each is problematical. You see, at eighty five, eighty six, going on eighty seven, and all that. Um, no, Julian has this extraordinary poetry night down at 45 downstairs. That's 45 Flinders Lane in Melbourne. And he gets a collection of readers, including me, uh, gets a collection of readers to come along and, um, and read poems. Some of them he's chosen, some of them I've chosen. But the... Uh, the and the, the impact is terrific. First of all, it's very gratifying to me and I'm touched by the kind of affection and so on that's demonstrated. But it's also when you hear these poems, when you hear, um, for example, George Herbert's poem, Love, for example. It's astonishing. When you hear those bark, uh, when you hear the... the uh, uh, oh, they also... He also has some music, generally some bark played by people from the Flinders String Quartet. Mm. Uh, and then, to he see, to hear Max Gillies uh, reciting the famous uh, Sed Hanrahan poem, a poem I hope you know. Uh, I don't think I could recite it, but I certainly, certainly it, heard it. it. But it's one of the great... We'll I all mean, be ruined, isn't it? We'll all be ruined, yeah. said Hanrahan. Hanrahan. That's, it's, it's a wonderful... It really is a wonderful poem. But I... Um, uh, in fact, and I read this year. I read some Beckett, and I also read three uh, very interesting poems, short poems by uh, uh, Rowan Williams, who you mentioned earlier, that as he describes himself as a recovering Archbishop of Canterbury, was very <laughs> interesting. I hadn't got, I had not met him until uh, the middle of last year in uh, in uh, Cambridge, but. Now we've become regular communicants, if we could say that, uh, and uh, he's, he's wonderful. There was a wonderful um, uh, dialogue between him and John Gray in The New Statesman mm. uh, a couple of months ago about the basis of morality and, and the basis of ethics in politics. Now, there's a new idea. Uh, and, you know, to what extent even people who describe themselves as card-carrying atheists are still influenced by that uh, uh, Western, uh, uh, you know, Christian tradition. Mm. It's a wonderful, a wonderful discussion. What about art galleries? How do you uh, go? How do you move through an art gallery to get the most out of it? I, <laughs> well, first of all, you, particularly if you're if you're overseas, uh, you've got to. Um, with limited amount of time, you've got to really say, yes, this is the exhibition that I really want to go to more than anything else. I mean, uh, 
when we were in, in Paris in, um, uh, earlier in the year, it's the first time for donkey's years that I didn't go to the Louvre. I mean, I know the Louvre wonderfully well, but there, this was a time I thought, oh, in the limited amount of time we've got, uh, there are a whole number of other galleries that I perhaps ought to spend more time at. So um, I spent time at the... Um, uh, at the, uh, uh, the Louis Vuitton Fondation, which is astounding, this new building done by Frank Gehry mm. in the Bois de Boulogne, uh, and then uh, a long time at, um, at the Quai d'Orsay, and then at the, at the Jacquemart uh, Museum. Have you ever been to that? Never, no. Jacquemart is a 19th century building, a very posh building, very close to the, the uh, uh, Champs-Élysées, but where this very rich family decided to really uh, show, strut their stuff. And it's largely a collection of Italian, more, than, more Italian than anything else, um, uh, artwork. Uh, fantastic. Uh, and it just shows the, this astonishing, astonishing reach of some of those uh, uh, early capitalists mm. in the 19th century in, in France. And I, I've only been to Jacquemart a couple of times, but last year I thought it was just absolutely wonderful. Normally in Paris I'd spend uh, uh, quite a lot of time at the Cluny Museum, but the Cluny actually is going through a massive refurb, and that's why the, uh, the lady in the unicorn tapestries were able to be shown in Sydney. Right. Because that's one of the one of the great things when they do have a refurb that somehow there's wonderful stuff being sent all over the world. So you've given us some great insights in the consumption and the art side. What about staying in, uh, up to date with I science? I strongly urge people to read uh, to read my book, The Shock of Recognition, because I've talked about Indeed. a lot of those. Yeah. Uh, how about keeping up with science? Do you tend to do that through uh, blogs or podcasts? Do you do it through re re reading the, the nature and science? Uh, how do you consume developments in science? All of the above. Now, um, I, I, I should confess that I'm, I'm, believe it or not, a member of the Melbourne Club, and it would be an interesting piece of social uh, observation for you to come along. You'd have to wear a tie, but... Uh, to have lunch uh, one day, next time perhaps when you're in Melbourne. But, uh, but for example, I, this is a typical illustration. We have a, uh, uh, a science group which meets every month. And uh, I should uh, protect the anonymity of some of the people who are there, but uh, you've got a collection of uh, really first class, you've got a has-been politician in me and people who were terrific scientists, you see, like Gus Nossel, like, of course, Peter Doherty. Uh, and, uh, but, so it means that we have, either we have a guest speaker, which we normally do, who's describing what they're doing in some particular area, and it's always fascinating to me that often even if it's a medical scientist who's with a new specialist, it's often new to other medical specialists because they say, oh, oh, I didn't know that. That was all yes. new to me. Um, 
but I uh, uh, but I find that really very very exciting, and um, it's uh, it's it's just wonderful the level of interaction. So I I keep in touch with scientific institutions. I've got so many friends in organisations mm. and so on around. So and I'll never turn down an invitation to do something or to be involved where where science is concerned. Uh, your collection of autographs yep. seems to sit oddly with uh, almost everything else we've discussed today. What is it about autographs that's le led you to uh, to develop what I understand to be Australia's largest private collection of autographs? Yeah, well, we're getting to that stage now, working out what happens next. And I mean, the answer is the collection will go to uh, uh, the State Library of Victoria. Uh, the paintings will go, uh, I think, to uh, to uh, the Geelong Gallery because I was born in Geelong and they're developing a really very good gallery down there. I, I, you see, it was really a reinforcement of when I was reading stuff about, uh, say, uh, th this is, of course, at the time of the quiz, but as I was becoming more and more involved in various areas, like music or literature, uh, and when I was also writing my Dictionary of World Biography, you see, the opportunity would come that I'd say, well, if I was reading, say, biographies of Stravinsky, I often noticed inconsistencies. So I thought, well, Stravinsky's still alive, so why not, why not write off and check a few things out with him? And to my delight, Stravinsky responded. And although I'd never met, I did see him face to face and then my nerve failed and I didn't go up and introduce myself, uh, but um, I saw him almost at the same distance that we are now. But, um, but it meant I'd picked up some inconsistencies and which he was happy to follow up on. Mm. Um, so the result is that if I, if you take the case of um, Warren Hastings, who we mentioned earlier before, the Governor-General of Bengal, um, it meant that if I saw in a, in a catalogue uh, uh, that there was a letter of... Uh, of uh, uh, Warren Hastings around and that I could acquire, well, I'd acquire it. Mm. Uh, and similarly, if I came across... Um, uh, in fact, I was doing some photographing Dave, for a, 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 so that I've got a photographic archive of some of those things. Um, if I came across a letter of Strindberg or if I came across a letter of, of Turgenev, a terrific letter of Turgenev, um, well... I'd I'd buy it, and so the collection's really quite a quite a significant one, and um, so that I've got you know composers like Brahms and Wagner and Liszt, but of course, see Mozart, Bach, Beethoven, absolutely out of my price range, and anything that comes up for auction now uh, will always go to an institution. Because the prices are so uh, uh, so extravagant. Yeah. What advice would you give to your teenage self? Well, I, I suppose that's the one of the questions that I really I really can't uh, can't answer. Um, I mean, basically, 
I think those three things that Bertrand Russell referred to, the search for love, the search for, the search for knowledge, and that pity for the suffering of mankind, they're the three things that, that really we should be pursuing and that they've got to try and keep us, keep us honest. And I suppose what really has disturbed me about what's happened in politics in recent years, months, even decades, is that to a large extent the, the idealism and but the, intellectual, the intellectual clout and the courage has, has disappeared. That so often now you find with, uh, with politicians that they can always think of a tremendous number of reasons why you can't do something. So, oh, it's, we can't afford it. Oh, it's not worthwhile. It'll go wrong. We've got no confidence we could... That if we attempted to make any change to anything, you know, everything would come crashing down. I mean... Even but your teenage self didn't seem to lack courage. Who? Your teenage self didn't seem to lack courage. Well, I, I think... That's got a lot to do with two factors, I think. One is the actual matter of timing. As I said, born in 1932, that means I'm just old enough to remember the, the Great Depression. Mm. I'm just old enough to, um, uh, to remember the, the, you know, the threat of, of the Nazis. I'm old enough to remember the, the horrors of World War II. And those issues were so confronting and I suspect that with recent generations, including your good self, you haven't been faced with something quite such an existential challenge. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I wrote somewhere, and it sounded as if I was being a bit of a smart-ass, but I said, you know, I was a convinced anti-Nazi by the age of six. And that's true. Yes. That's true. I'd read a lot about it, and I knew quite a lot about it. And I remember there was a kind of family joke that when an aunt of mine came back from, uh, from England, um, uh, I, the first question I asked her was, what did you think of the foreign policies of Cordell Hull? Now, Cordell Hull was Roosevelt's not very successful Secretary of State, and I would have been not quite six at that stage. <laughs> now, no doubt I was showing off, but in fact, I did have a real interest in mm. that. And I remember, I mean, one of the great, one of the appalling childhood memories is that going down to the area, a place called Dudley Flats, which is now really what we now call Docklands. I mean, it's quite a posh um, area. Lots of cladding, although it's still mm. quite a posh area. And I remember at that stage, it was really like a refugee camp because you had people who were victims of the Depression and I remember going down with my mother because she had a friend who was there and uh, I remember seeing a rat that seemed to be about the size of an Airedale and uh, that may be a bit of poetic licence there but, but, uh, but there was a, a, a really an emotional but also a visceral reaction, yes. an olfactory reaction as well to say people ought not to be living like this. Yes. This is an outrage. People shouldn't be living like this. And, uh, and 
You see, there was that very brief period, didn't last long, after the end of the Second World War, when suddenly, you know, the United Nations were being established and you thought, oh, it'll be possible to transform things, that the, that the inequities that were so demonstrated in the 1930s, the kind of factors that had led Hitler to mm. rise to power, they'll be gone. Well, within a few years, the Cold War had started again and it was, the same. It was game on once more. Yes. Yes, it's an incredible uh, encapsulation of those forces that shaped you. When are you most happy? I think probably I'm most happy with... uh, Well, I do enjoy the grandchild. It's a grandchild by proxy, my wife's grandchild, but I'm very proud of it. I I think what I like most about him, and I've had absolutely so little exposure to small children. What I like is when we're reading something about dinosaurs and he'll correct me and say, no, Bapa, that's wrong. You've got... I think, <laughs> I think that's terrific. And... Um, uh, but I think going, going to concerts, travelling, seeing, seeing people... Uh, uh, last time, um, I think... Probably the high point of um, last year. I mean, last year was a pretty crappy year uh, because I was, you know, really under the weather for a long time. But I think the high point probably last year was Chartres. I hadn't been to Chartres for... i have been to Chartres quite a lot, but I hadn't been for 20, 20 years probably. And it was so much better than I'd... even than I'd remembered... And I took some... I'm actually pretty proud of some of the photographs that I took of them. If you, I'll, I'll impose a couple on, of, on, on you if you like. We'll include them in the show notes. That'll All right, but the, uh, the, the, um, uh, the, the photographs, the stained glass windows are just, just sensational. What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? I seem to be on a bit of a roll at the moment, and uh, I, I'm, uh, I've been going through a, a massive um, revision of my Dictionary of World Biography for the sixth uh, reprint being done by uh, ANU. And uh, I've made a few kind of... Uh, I'm very proud of some of the entries that I've rewritten. I've become very interested in Nietzsche, uh, and I've been rethinking Nietzsche and uh, his, uh, uh, the way his mind operated. And I'm very, very pleased with the one I did on Florence Nightingale, if it comes to that, on the one on Kipling. I mean, there are three examples at random, but where I did a, a really a massive rewrite, uh, thinking about the complexity where they have and what an extraordinarily complex character Kipling was. Uh, you know, repellent in so many ways, but an astonishing, astonishing writer. You know, and that, um, I mean, even T.S. Eliot was saying he didn't regard him as a great poet, but he regarded him as a great verse writer, perhaps the greatest verse writer in English. Not a bad tribute coming from somebody like uh, like Eliot. Um, and uh, he he was extraordinary. But... More and more, I've been reading about about Nietzsche and about the 
extraordinary way in which Nietzsche's teaching, Nietzsche's ideas were, were distorted and contorted by this dreadful sister of his, um, so that he, it was, Nietzsche was then sort of automatically uh, identified with the with the the Nazis, you know, and and so on. Although, it was if there's anything very clear from Nietzsche's writing, is that he despised uh, racial uh, discrimination, and was not very far from being an anti-Semite, uh, and um, he. Um, Nietzsche's a very, very extraordinary character. And I've been reading more and more about this, uh, about Lou Andreas Salome, who the, the, uh, this extraordinary Russian early psychiatrist who, uh, to whom Nietzsche proposed twice, and she then went on to become the lover of Rilke. And... Um, uh, but uh, just an extraordinary, extraordinary character. And finally, Barry, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? I, I think going back to that experience of, uh, of, of seeing the, the poverty uh, the destitution and the and the ignominy of the way people lived. And these were Australians who were refugees in their own country yes. in the 1930s. And I can't look at them and preference them and say, well, if people come from another country with another tradition, another language, another religion, I've got to treat them in a different kind of way. I find that obnoxious. And I think the, the, the retreat from ethics is appalling. And I, there's, something, there's something about the, the, the corrupted nature of, of political discourse. It ought to be the noblest of all professions. And in fact, it's looked pretty murky in recent decades. Barry Jones, Living Treasure. Thank you very much for taking your time to share your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.